Good to have everybody here. May Yahweh bless you for your desire to study the Scriptures. Today will be the Septuagint Part 2. Um, last month we began to look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's what the Septuagint is in a nutshell. And we noticed last month that the authors of the New Testament, most of the time when they quote the Old Testament, they quote from the Greek Old Testament, or at least what's called in scholarship, something's called the Vorlage, V-O-R-L-A-G-E, which is the underlying Hebrew scripts that the Septuagint was translated from. So they're quoting from one of the two. When we compare the times quoted from the Septuagint versus what's called the Masoretic text, or we could call the Proto-Masoretic text, the Septuagint outweighs the Masoretic 9 to 1. About 90% of the quotations are from the Septuagint, where the two uh, uh, have variants. Today, I want to deal with two particular points. One is, where did it come from? Where did this Greek Old Testament come from? That's what we're going to look at first. We know that it had to be in existence before the first century A.D., uh, when the books of the New Testament were written because we have authors that are sometimes writing in Greek, like when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he wasn't writing in Hebrew or Aramaic. The Thessalonians would have spoke Greek, so he's writing in Greek. So when Paul quotes the Septuagint to the church at Colossae or Thessalonica or Ephesus in Asia Minor, um, he's quoting from the Septuagint. But when did it originate? Why did it originate? We're going to look at that. And secondarily, we're going to look at some things in our modern Bibles, Bibles that you use, that come from the Septuagint. And you know these things already. I guarantee the people here, you know these things, but yet you, like me at one time, never have realized that these things you know stem from the Greek Septuagint. So our Old Testaments and our Bibles are based mostly on the Masoretic text, but there are still Septuagint influences in them that have stuck. So we want to start with something called the letter of Aristius. I've pulled up this summary of the letter of Aristius from encyclopedia.com. You can Google letter of Aristius, A-R-I-S-T-E-A-S. You can Google it online and read this in its entirety for yourselves. I had trouble determining where I was going to take the summary from because just about all of the Bible dictionaries I have mention something of what we're going to look at right here. Um, but I thought, well, let me pull this one from encyclopedia.com. Um, so let's read the entirety of this summary of the letter of Aristius here. The letter of Aristius is a narrative that under the guise of a letter purports to tell how a Greek translation of the Law of Moses, first five books... Genesis through Deuteronomy, was made during the reign of Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, 285 to 247 B.C. Recounted by a Gentile courtier named Aristius for his brother Philocrates, the narrative may be summarized as follows. Demetrius of Phalerium, the royal librarian, informs Ptolemy that the Jewish law is worthy of inclusion in the royal library, but that manuscripts and translators are needed. As a matter of fact, if you study this in the letter and in Bible dictionaries, you'll see that 
I believe his name is Demetrius, speaks of this library in Alexandria, Egypt. You may have heard of it. It was once the greatest library in the world. He said at this time he had over 200,000 books in this library, but he was looking to have 500,000 books in the library. <laughs> so anyhow, you can check that out when you read the letter. It goes on, Aristius, a pious and influential uh, courtier, courtier, courier, however that's pronounced, first persuades Ptolemy to emancipate all Jewish slaves as a gesture of goodwill and then leads a delegation to the high priest in Jerusalem. Aristius' delegation requests a team of 72 translators to which the high priest Eleazar readily agrees. Elaborate details follow, such as the names of the translators, the gifts sent by Philadelphus, Ptolemy, descriptions of the temple, the temple service, and the holy city, and a disquisition on the logic of Jewish dietary laws. The translators receive a royal welcome upon their arrival in Egypt and display their wisdom at a series of seven banquets hosted by Philadelphus. They then set about their task and produce a consensus translation in exactly 72 days. The new translation is approved by the Jewish community and a curse is pronounced against anyone who would alter it. Philadelphus marvels at the wisdom of the law and sends the translators back to Jerusalem with lavish gifts. Now, the time period here of this letter is during the reign of a man named Ptolemy. Some say Ptolemy the first, others say Ptolemy the second, be that as it may. The main point that I'd like to make is that Ptolemy was the descendant of Alexander the Great's, one of Alexander the Great's generals. Now Alexander the Great was a man that was prophesied about in the book of Daniel. And he was called the Great because under his rule in his Grecian empire, he conquered most of the known world, the Mediterranean world. And he Hellenized it. And that's a fancy word meaning he brought Greek influence on the world. And with bringing Greek influence on the world, it means basically Greek became the language of the known world. Kind of like English is from a lot of the world today. Okay? This is a big reason why after this and during the time of the New Testament writers, the major common language in the world was Greek. Now, I want everybody also to understand this. After the Babylonian captivity, which lasted about 70 years, not all Israelites went back to the Promised Land at the rebuilding of the temple under the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Some Israelites stayed dispersed and lived freely. Others still lived in somewhat of a servitude to other nations and their rulers. Many lived in Egypt, which was south of Israel. And Alexandria, Egypt is where Ptolemy's headquarters were, and his library existed there of more than 200,000 books. Uh, this is a primary source reference for the origin of the Septuagint. At least, at least it pertains to the first five books. Okay? So what the letter of Aristius claims is not the entirety of the Older Testament, but what we would call the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy was translated uh, during this time in, in, in 72 days. So some of the main points is that 72 translators, six from each tribe, by the way, six times 12 is 72. They said they requested 72 translators in that way and that they accomplished their work in 72 days. And that is where we get the name Septuagint or Septuaginta, which is Latin, meaning 70. Sometimes you'll see this abbreviated in... Dictionaries and encyclopedias as LXX, which is the Roman numerals for 70. The reason it's called the LXX or the Septuaginta is because 72 translators are purported to have worked on it, 
and it was accomplished in 72 days, and they just kind of round down to 70 to make it easier and call it the Septuagint. Now, if you'll notice this encyclopedia.com about the letter of Aristius, it says that they produced a consensus translation in exactly 72 days. So the story goes that when the translators compare their work that was done either separately or in pairs or groups, that there was no major variation in their work. All agreed with each other, so it was considered to be a divine or a miracle translation. There are scholars that say that this is just a legend, that it didn't really happen. This is legendary. Uh, it was purported to happen to bolster the authority of this new Greek translation of the Scriptures. Um, I question that, though, and we're going to go over now why I question that. And I kind of lean towards that we get facts in the letter of Aristius rather than legend. And here's why. Uh, two primary Jewish historians, both of them, Philo, that spanned the B.C. to the A.D. era, and Josephus, who writes in the late century A.D., both Philo and Josephus record that they believed what was written in the letter of Aristius. Now, Philo speaks on this at length in his work on the life of Moses, book chapter or book two. You can read this in Young's translation of Philo on pages 493 to 494. We're not going to read the whole thing. It would take 30 minutes to read it, but you can read that in your study time. I'm going to go over a summary of what Philo talks about when he discusses the Septuagint. Philo speaks of Ptolemy. He speaks of the laws of Moses being translated into the Greek language by selected respectable Hebrews. He speaks of this island of Pharos, which was a quiet island on which the translators were sent to perform the task. Um, he speaks of the agreement among them in their translations. Philo even talks about the translators and calls them prophets who wrote in the pure spirit of Moses. He also mentions that there was a yearly festival after the translation of the Septuagint where both Jews and non-Jews would travel yearly to commemorate the Septuagint translation. He mentions the island of Pharaohs. They would come to that island and Jews and non-Jews, they would pray, they would give thanks, they would pitch tents, they would feast, and they would meditate on what the Almighty accomplished in the translation of the, the law, the Torah, into the common world language, into the language of, of Greek. So Philo says this happened. Now, not only does Philo say this happened, but Josephus does as well. And Josephus writes after Philo, but still early, first century. He talks about this in his Antiquities of the Jews, book 12, chapter 2, and you can read this on pages 388 to page 395 in uh, Wiston's translation of Josephus. Now, Josephus writes of Ptolemy, Aristius, Josephus says that Hebrew was unknown to most people in the world at that time, thus the need for a translation in the common language. Josephus mentions 72 translators. He mentions a quiet place that was chosen to translate by a seashore. Josephus says the translators would wake up in the morning, they would wash their hands, and they would work on the translation from the morning until about the ninth hour of the day. And then after the ninth hour, they would relax, they would eat, and he talks about how the translation of the Torah was accomplished in 72 days. 
So Josephus says this actually took place, and he lived way back then. One more ancient author. I could go over others, but we'll just do with one more. And this is somebody that's known as an early church father, Justin Martyr, lived from about 100 to 165 A.D. and wrote right around 150 A.D. His writings here, we're going to talk about, are found in volume one of the Antonicene Church Fathers, pages 278 to 279. Justin Martyr mentions Ptolemy. He mentions the library in Alexandria, Egypt. He mentions 70 wise men from Jerusalem that were sought after. By the, by the high priest and, and came to Alexandria, Egypt. He mentions miraculous agreement between the translators, and he mentions that Ptolemy was struck with amazement and believed that the translation had been written by divine power. Then Justin Martyr writes this. We'll read the quote. He says, These things, ye men of Greece, are no fable, nor do we narrate fictions, but we ourselves, having been in Alexandria, saw the remains of the little cots at the pharaohs still preserved. And having heard these things from the inhabitants who had received them as part of their country's tradition, we now tell to you what you can also learn from others, and especially from those wise and esteemed men who have written of these things, following Josephus and many others. End of that quote from Justin Martyr. So we have three ancient authors that believe that what took place or what's mentioned in the letter of Aristius actually took place, I should say. Justin says he saw the remains of the little cots or cottages there on the island where the translators quietly would do their work each day for those 72 days. Now, some people say we don't really know why and how the Greek translation of the Old Testament began, but that it's just a reality. They know it's a reality because people began to use it at that time, especially in the New Testament when the authors would, would write, they would quote from it. I tend to disagree and believe that the letter of Aristius contains much factual recording of what took place. And the reason I tend to take that view is because of the record of Philo and Josephus primarily, but also because of the record of early Christian writers like Justin Martyr. I do want to give an alternate view, and this is taken from the Pictorial Bible Dictionary on page 770. The alternate view here, taken by a lot of scholars, says this, quote, It seems most likely that the LXX originated not by the desire of Ptolemy II, although the project may have had his approval, but out of the need of the Alexandrian Jews. Alexandria of the 3rd century B.C. was a large city with a great Jewish population. These Jews were Greek-speaking, having long since forgotten their own language. The vigorous Jewish intellectual life of Alexandria, exemplified by Philo Judaeus a later century, would demand the Torah in Greek, just as an earlier generation of Jews made targums of the Old Testament in the Aramaic language. End of that quote. So this is an alternate view. It has praise for the Septuagint. It just lands on a different origin. It doesn't believe the miraculous story mentioned in the letter of Aristius, but it does say that there was a need that arose because... The Jews of the dispersion didn't speak Hebrew. It's kind of like when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah. And in, I think it's Nehemiah chapter 8 where it says that they would read the book of the law and then give the sense. And a lot of scholars believe they would read it in Hebrew. Ezra would know Hebrew. But the large majority of the congregation wouldn't know Hebrew, so they would translate it in Aramaic. And that's where the targum, the paraphrases, come from. So when people only know a secondary language, there's a need to have the scriptures 
translated orally or in written form in that particular language. Regardless, the Septuagint became popular worldwide among both Jews and Christians. Here's another quote from the Encyclopedic Dictionary of the Bible, page 2166. It says this, quote, At first the LXX was highly regarded by all the Jews. It spread from Egypt to the whole Jewish diaspora and became the official Bible of Greek-speaking Judaism. The New Testament writers writing in Greek for Greek-speaking people usually quoted from the Old Testament according to the LXX. Naturally, therefore, the LXX also became the official Old Testament of the early church. And it is still the official Old Testament of the Greek church. Uh, end of that quote, or at least as far as I've got there on the screen. The Greek church, by that, he means Christianity in the East. Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Oriental Orthodox, uh, Coptic churches. Um, I have here the Orthodox Study Bible. One of the reasons that I ordered this Bible is because the Old Testament is translated in English from the Septuagint. So this church, uh, the Orthodox Church, Greek Orthodox or Coptic, they've never stopped using this for their Old Testament. They'll, if you talk to one of them, and I would encourage you, you know, talk to one of the priests. It uh, doesn't mean you have to believe everything that they believe doctrinally, but just talk to them. It's good to talk to people to gain knowledge. And they'll tell you, you know, we've, ne we've used this for 2,000 years. We've never stopped using this text. So this is the most readable Septuagint text that I've, I've found. And obviously it's in English, right? I don't speak Greek. But. So that talks about the, the origin of the Septuagint. Two major thoughts. One, there was just a need that arose because of the Jews of the Diaspora, and they just decided, hey, let's translate this into Greek so that our community can understand the Torah. The other one, the letter of Aristius is it was a miracle. They sent a delegation, got 72 translators. They translated separately. They compared at least Genesis to Deuteronomy, and there were no major variations. It was, it was divine. Next, we're going to go on to what you already know, but you don't realize that you know. And this is going to be neat uh, when we go over this. I remember the first time I was shown this, what I'm about to show you, and I was blown away and fascinated. Uh, the names that you know for the first five books of the Bible, they don't come from the Hebrew Old Testament. They rather come from the Greek Septuagint. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all of that is based on the Greek, not on the Hebrew. Genesis is a Greek word. Leviticus is a Greek word. Deuteronomy is a, a Greek word. We're all familiar with the word Torah. Torah is the Hebrew word, means teachings and instructions or guidance, right? Um, or we're familiar with the phrase Law of Moses. Has anybody ever heard of the word Pentateuch? Okay. Pentateuch basically is a Greek combination word. Penta meaning five and tukos meaning implements or, or books. Put them together, it's the five books. This is the scholarly name for the Torah in the Greek Bible, the Septuagint. You'll hear scholars talk about the Pentateuch, talking about the Law of Moses or, or the Torah. This is something we all know. I grew up calling Genesis, Genesis. <laughs> Nobody ever told me it was from the Greek Septuagint. I never heard a word breathed in my church about the Greek Septuagint. I didn't know it existed until I got older and started studying the Bible for myself. So I want to go over these names of the, of the books here, the first five books. The first one is Genesis. Genesis is a Greek word that means origin or beginning. 
This is why the name was chosen for the first book of the Bible, because it talks about origins and the beginning. Um, it's used in Genesis 2 verse 4 in this Bible, and they just transliterate the word. This is the book of the Genesis of heaven and earth when they were made. Genesis 2-4 Orthodox Study Bible. I think most Bibles that we use will say something like, this is the book of the generations of the heavens and the earth, something like that. Uh, or, be, or the beginning of the heavens and the earth, depending on what translation that you use. The Hebrew name for the first book of the Bible that Jews refer uh, to the first book as is the word Bereshith. And Bereshith means origin or beginning. Uh, but that phrase, in the beginning, or some scholars say in a beginning, it might be better translated there in Genesis 1.1. If you look at that in Hebrew, it's Bereshith. And the reason that that book is called Bereshith by Jews is because they get it from the first line in the book. But the Greek Septuagint calls it Genesis, and we all grew up calling it Genesis. I don't think any of us grew up calling it Bereshith, right? And none of us grew up calling it the beginning. We just called it Genesis without, you know, thinking. I learned the books of the Bible when I was just a little fella. And I, you know, I said, well, they told my teacher said his name was Genesis. That's what I'm going to call it. Well, that comes from the Greek Septuagint. The next book is Exodus, also from the Greek Septuagint. Exodus is a Greek word meaning departure or going out. It's a reference to the deliverance of the Israelites from the land of Egypt. The reason that you call it Exodus is because of Greek Septuagint influence on your Bible. Even though the text that you read in the Bible was taken from the, what's called the Masoretic text, the Septuagint has influence there, uh, calling the name of the book Exodus. The Hebrew name for the book of Exodus is Shemot. Why is it called Shemot? Well, again, the first line in the book of Exodus says, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel. And then it lists their names. The word Shemot means names. It's plural for, for Shem. Shem is name. Shemot means names. And so they take that first line. They grab a word out of that. This is what we're going to call this book. Jews today will refer to this book as Shemot. Leviticus, again, stemming from the Greek language. It's, Leviticus is a Latin word that means of the Levites. But that stems from the more ancient Greek Leviticon. Now, you'll notice that does come from the Hebrew name Levi, or actually Levi, or Le Lewi, but it's a transliteration from Hebrew to Greek. The reason we call it Leviticus is because of the Levites, but it stems from Greek and Latin. In Hebrew, it's nothing like that. In Hebrew, the name of this book is Vayikra. And Vayikra means, and he called. Why is it called Vayikra? Because the first line. The first line in this book says, and Yahweh called unto Moses, or he called, by Yikra. Okay, Numbers, this is a different one because Numbers is an English word, right? But it still stems from the Greek. Now, we'll talk about that in a second, but the reason that we call it the book of Numbers is because in chapter 1 there's a census taken where the people are numbered. However, in the Greek Septuagint, the name of this book is Arithmoi, from where we get our word arithmetic. And what happened is instead of transliterating the name Arithmoi into English like the other ones did, they translated it. Arithmoi into English, translated means numbers. They number the people, we'll call it the book of numbers. So that, again, the name we call this book stems from the Greek Septuagint, not the Hebrew text. 
In Hebrew, the name of this book is Bamidbar. Bamidbar means in the wilderness, once again, following suit. The first line in the book of Bamidbar, or Numbers, speaks of Yahweh speaking to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. We call it Bamidbar because in the wilderness. And then last, but certainly not least, one of my favorite books of the Bible, Deuteronomy, once again stems from the Greek Septuagint, made up of two words, deutero, which is second, and nomos, which is law, second law, second giving of the law. First giving of the law is what I'm teaching on in our Sabbath sermons at, at Mount Sinai, or at least the codification giving of the law. Uh, second giving of the law is at the end of the wilderness wanderings on the 11th new moon, according to Deuteronomy 1 verse 3. Moshe gets up and he speaks, and, he, and basically he reiterates the law again. Second law, second giving of the law. The name, though, stems from a translator interpretation of Deuteronomy 17, verse 18 in the Septuagint. If you know Deuteronomy 17, within that chapter is a list of regulations for who? Anybody? The king. The king king of Israel. He has a list of of standards uh, for himself. And one of his regulations is he must write out a copy of the law. And in Hebrew, it's a copy of the Torah. But in the Septuagint, it says, when he sits on the throne of his rule, he shall write for himself a copy of this second law. And it's a reference to the second giving of the law. And the translator interpretation there took that and called the book Deuteronomos or Deuteronomy. In Hebrew, the book is called Devarim. And Devarim is plural of Devar. Devar means to speak or a word. Devarim means words, plural. Again, read the first line in the book. These are the words which Moses spake. They take from that first line words, plural, Devarim, and they call the book Devarim. So the point, the main point here is that this is something that everybody already knew but you didn't realize you knew. (laughs) When you say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as the, the names of the first five books of Scripture, that comes from Greek Septuagint influence, not Hebrew Masoretic text influence. Okay? Or else we'd be saying Bereshit, Shemot, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Devarim. I think it's good to memorize that, especially if you talk to a Jewish person and all of a sudden you tell them, well, you know, over there in Shemot chapter 22 and their eyes perk up, how do you know that? That's the name of that book. I've done it before, so I know that that, that happens. And they, they, they'll listen better if you do that. So I would encourage you to learn the, the Hebrew names for the books of the Torah as well. My last few charts will go over something that I think most people in here have likely already spoken. Again, you didn't know that it came from the Septuagint. How many in here has heard of Joseph's coat of many colors? I think everybody knows about the coat of many colors. I learned about that children's church, Sunday school when I was growing up. Um, I grew up reading the King James Version. A lot of my memory verses still come out King James because that was the only Bible we were allowed to take to school when I was going to Christian school. <laughs> it said on the thing, you must have a, a Bible and then it had a star. Make sure it is a King James Version Bible. Yeah, we weren't allowed when I was in school to have a different version. So my mom tells this story that she, when she got a little bit older, I was still a kid, but she had got herself an NIV Bible. And there was this brother on the campground because all my family was big churchgoers. His brother on the campground, Brother L.C., sweet, sweet old man. I remember him a little bit when I was little. But he came in, they were having a little Bible study in my granddaddy's living room, and my mom 
Her name is Karen. She, which is a prestigious name in Hebrew, right, Brother Sandy? Yeah. <laughs> it was her turn to read, and she read, and Brother L.C., she said, Brother L.C. leaned up and looked at her and said, Sister, Sister Karen, that's what they called her, Sister Karen, so what Bible are you reading from? She said, this is the New International Version. She said, he got up, walked out, and a few minutes later came back with the King James Version. He said, won't you read out of that one next time? <laughs> the church I grew up in wasn't like staunch, like in your face, KJV only, but they definitely had a strong preference for, for the King James. And eventually, I think they, they grew out of that. And would, My dad would read from the New King James and some people from the NIV. So, But I grew up reading the KJV, and this is what I read at Genesis 37, verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. Now that's how it reads in English, but that is not how it reads in Hebrew. And the King James Version Old Testament is taken not from the Greek, but from the Hebrew, what we call the Masoretic Text. The reason it's called Masoretic Text is because around the Middle Ages, around the turn of the century, 1000 A.D. roughly, there was a group of Jewish scholars named Masoretes that added vowel pointings to the Hebrew text of Scripture so that the pronunciation of words wouldn't be lost. Um, and so that's why we call it the Masoretic text. But the KJV is taken from that, but, but not this place right here. But just most people read that and they don't, they don't realize it. There's other readings. I've got some translations here on the screen. Uh, the ERV says, special coat, long and very beautiful. The Good News Bible says he made a long robe with full sleeves for him. The more I read the Good News Bible, it is a very easy to read and sometimes paraphrased translation. But the more that I read and study it, I find that they are very, very true. They try really hard to stay with the text from which they're translating, even though it's a more paraphrased or loose translation. Um, it's turning into one of my, my favorites. Uh, easy to understand Bible. The Lexham English Bible. And he made a robe with long sleeves for him. Tree of Life Version, the Messianic Bible. So he had made him a long-sleeved tunic. I like that one. Why don't any of these Bibles say anything about a coat of many colors? The reason they don't is because they're actually staying true to the Hebrew text. The Hebrew text doesn't say anything about a coat of many colors. The Hebrew reads katanath pas, or it might say katanath pasim in the plural, maybe. I can't remember. But the word katanath means a robe or a tunic, most of the time in the KJV translated as coat, because a coat is more robe-like or tunicky, I guess we'd say. And pas, the word pas refers to the, the flat of the hand or the, the sole of the foot, so the palm or the sole. And what it is is long sleeves and, and a long robe. And that's why these translations say that he made him a long and sleeved robe or long and sleeved tunic. And they would say, people that, that believe that this is the proper reading, would say that the reason that this particular robe or tunic was special is because most of the time young men would wear robes that were either short-sleeved or sleeveless and tunics that were to the knee or you know below the thigh. And so Joseph's was different because his was down to the sole of his feet and down to the palms of his hand. There was more material involved. Joseph was the son of Israel's old age. He loved him more than all of his other sons. He made him this special garment. So the King James Version and other translations, including mine, I believe, that says coat of many colors, HCSB, they fudged here, and even though they're translating from the Hebrew Masoretic text, they 
said, well, on this we're going to pull from the Septuagint. And a lot of times Bibles do this and people don't realize because most Bibles don't have footnotes. Thankfully, mine at the bottom has footnotes with alternate manuscript readings. Uh, but the KJV borrowed from the Septuagint here. Uh, the Greek rendering is two Greek words, chiton, which means a coat or a tunic, and poikilos, which is a word that means variegated or, or various colors. Thus, the Lexham English Septuagint, Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a many-colored tunic. Now, the Cambridge Bible Notes, you can pull this up on BibleHub.com, which I recommend you get that app for your phone. It's very useful. The Cambridge Bible Notes reads here, you look down on the last paragraph, the lengthy one, a coat of many colors, rather as the RV margin, a long garment with sleeves. Now they're pulling that from the Hebrew. The familiar rendering, a coat of many colors, derived from the LXX, and it gives the Greek, and then it talks about the Latin Vulgate, tunicum, Polymetum, which I assume, I haven't studied this, but I assume those Latin words mean the same thing, coat of many colors. <clears throat> then they say, is certainly incorrect. So they're going, they're saying that it should be a long and sleeve tunic and not pull from the LXX. Well, that's, it's debatable. I mean, which text you want to use, but it is literally a tunic of palms, i.e. reaching to the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet, differing from an ordinary tunic by having sleeves and by reaching to the feet. The same word is used in 2 Samuel 13, 18 of a dress worn by a princess where the LXX reads like it says in Greek and then the Latin tunica talaris, they're correct. They say that that's correct, at least in their estimation. The rendering of the margin of the Peshitta, S-Y-M-M, abbreviation, and Aquila, Simicus, I think, and Aquila, if less picturesque is more accurate. So the Cambridge Bible thinks that it should be translated a long garment with sleeves, and you know what? They're right. If they're pulling from the Hebrew, that's, that's correct. It shouldn't say coat of many colors, but the thing is is that a lot of the translations go with coat of many colors because they're pulling from, from the Septuagint, something that's always been in there, but not a lot of people realize or, or recognize. So which one was it? Well, it could have been one or the other. Maybe it was both. Maybe it was colorful, and maybe it was a long and a sleeved tunic. It could have been. The point, though, that I'm making is that our King James Version and probably what every one of us in here has grown up thinking. Anybody seen a Bible coloring book lately? And on the front it'll have, Joseph, you can pull them up, just Google it. Front, and what, it, what will he have? He'll have a long robe and it'll be many colors. <laughs> Joseph's coat of many colors. And then you're supposed to turn back and color it how the picture looks on, on the front. I saw one today uh, in a Google search. That comes from the Greek Genesis, not the Hebrew Bereshith. Not saying that the Hebrew Bereshith is necessarily wrong. It may not be. It might be a long and sleeved tunic. Um, I'm not saying that we um, are talking about any kind of major doctrinal point here <laughs> with the variation in the manuscripts. Not saying that. I'm just saying that your Bible has Greek Septuagint influence in it, and most people don't don't realize. And this is not the only place that this was done. There are more significant places. I'm just not going to get into them uh, right now. Um, one final quote from a Bible dictionary. This comes from the Illustrated Davis Dictionary of the Bible. And we'll end with this. It says, quote, Christ and his apostles used the Septuagint frequently. In quoting from the Old Testament, sometimes they cited the Septuagint verbatim or with unimportant verbal changes. 
At others, they apparently themselves translated from the original Hebrew. There are about 350 quotations from the Old Testament in the Gospels, the Acts, and the Epistles, and only about 50 materially differ from the Greek version. The Ethiopian eunuch whom Philip met was reading the Septuagint, Acts 8, 30-33. So, into that quote, I think I might have mentioned this in part one, but I'm going to mention it here just in case I didn't. Basically, there's roughly 350 quotations where the New Testament authors cite the Old Testament. About 300 of them are from the Septuagint. About 50 of them stem from Hebrew, Aramaic, different Dead Sea Scroll texts and things like that. But about 300 of them stem from the Septuagint. So that's, that's pretty important. Uh, pretty important. Anybody got any final questions before we... Close out the study in the Word of Prayer. Sister Kate. Not Caitlin. really related to the study, but Good News Bible, is that the one that's only online? It's majority online, and you can't, I mean, I don't know of any store that you can go and buy one. You can find them on Amazon paperbacks. Oh, you could buy them. Yeah, yeah. They, um, as a matter of fact, I've been wanting to buy me a Good News translation with the Apocrypha, just for easy reading purposes. And you can buy a paperback one online. I just haven't got around to it yet, but... Uh, you can pull it up. Just punch in Good News Translation with Apocrypha in your Google engine, um, and it'll, it'll pop up just like that. So I always like to, when I study text of the Bible, I always like to read it in multiple translations because sometimes, let's just be real, you read it and you're scratching your head and you're thinking, what does that mean? And then translators have done the hard work to bring out the meanings of verses, and some translations just make it easier. And then you'll read, let's say, the Good News Bible, and you'll say, oh, that makes sense. And then you'll go back and read the one that was difficult to understand. And then maybe all of a sudden you say, oh, okay, that's what they're trying to say in this particular translation. So never limit yourself to just one. Um, always use multiple translations of the Bible. Uh, Sister Janet. I have a comment. Yes. So we were actually listening to something on the way up here. Um, you know, the big question is why? You know, we understand that perhaps it was for the king, for his library, for the Jews that were there to teach those that were, did not speak Hebrew, and they didn't either. But why? Why did Yahweh sanction this? Mm. You know, there, there are issues with the translation, we know that, but why did Yahweh actually say, okay, well, my divine intervention is going to be involved here, mm -hmm. and it was to spread the gospel. Mm, yeah. All those that speak Greek. Excellent point. Because that was the main language of most people there. Excellent point. Worldwide. Yeah. I mean, that was the most like English. Yep. Yeah. So that's why he did it. Yep. I mean, that's the big question. Why? Yep. Well, that's why. Spread the gospel. Yeah. The gospel is in Genesis. Sure, sure, sure. I agree. Sister Janet, that's right on the money. Uh, I thought about that when I was studying this week. Um, Yahweh sometimes uses heathen rulers to accomplish his purposes. Remember Cyrus in the book of Daniel? And then I think maybe it's mentioned at the end of Chronicles or maybe Ezra and Nehemiah and Isaiah. I raise up this, yeah, I raise up this Persian king to, to do what? Release the Israelites and let them go back to their land and build the temple. Forty-five one. Forty-five one of Isaiah. Yeah. My Cyrus, my anointed. Mashiach, I think in Hebrew. Yeah. So so why couldn't Yahweh have used Ptolemy Philadelphus? in his providence to say, all right, look, I know the known language is going to be Greek. Let's, let me move upon this ruler to get this ball rolling. And so, therefore, you know, the 
the majority of the New Testament. That's exactly right. He turns yeah. the hearts of kings. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Praise Yahweh for men like um, uh, William Tyndale who made it possible we could read the Bible in English, right? Amen. So, uh, yeah, good point. Excellent point. Anybody else? Comment or question? Doesn't have to be a question. Sister, uh, Brother Sandy. Uh, Sister Roseanne. Yes. With Genesis 37 here of the 1599 Geneva, uh-huh. uh, instead of coat of many colors, it, their little um, study notes says four pieces. Hmm. Off the Dolly hmm. <laughs> yeah. I thought about I thought about Dolly's song when I was putting this together. I like the song. I think it's a beautiful song. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting. That's Geneva. Let me make, and that's, the, what was that, Genesis 37, right? Let me borrow your uh, yeah, pen there. I have colors, but I have a little number, eight, and you go back to that, this is four pieces. Cool. I really wish that they would, you know, something that I was thinking about while we were going through this. I is King James, sort of? You know, the English Standard Version pulls from, I think, every available source that you can. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the English Standard Version says, you know, coat of many colors with full sleeves. Mm. Why, why doesn't it just do both? If they really think both are really good sources, why do they pick one over the other? Mm-hmm. That's frustrating to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I think that's really cool what you said, Janet. I think that's true. Um, there are three big things that were present at the fullness of time. One of the first sermons I heard Matthew preach here, he preached on that passage in Galatians. Uh. In the fullness of time, the Messiah was prophesied. Um, and it couldn't be more true because uh, Rome had built all the roads and travel was never easier in the ancient world than it was then. The Jewish diaspora was in every city. Hmm. So you had people knowledgeable in the scriptures everywhere to plant churches. Hmm. And you had the Greek language, so, which allowed you to be able to uh, communicate both legally in most places, whether it was Latin or Greek. Um, or to the common people, or the Jews. So it was a it was the fullness of time in every way imaginable. Yeah. Excellent. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. Oh, Brother Sandy, yes. Two things. Sure. You mentioned that. Sure. Everybody sort of feels that way. I think it was the origin. There was a translation, and there was six that he had in it. Hexapla, yes. Uh-huh. yes. Yes. And so he had the Hebrew, the transliteration, he had the Septuagint, and three others. And I think uh, it was 6,000 pages, 15 volumes. So uh, a lot of times you're thinking, man, I like to have such and such and everything. You know, but then you would say, well. Care uh, what you wish for. Yeah, it's a little hard to hear it. Mm-hmm. I was going to mention, wow. this is our second one. Yes, yes, uh, on the Septuagint, yes. Yes, uh, can you extend it so you can give us six or 12 more examples of uh, that about the code? That would be nice. Oh, like uh, examples w- with variations in the text. Yes, that would be oh, nice. Oh, yeah. I, my plan is is to do this all 2022. I think I can teach 12 lessons on the Septuagint and not run out of material. Yeah. So what I'm saying is like you can give us maybe another dozen or so examples of the difference with the many colors. You got it. Okay. That'd yeah. Be cool. I will definitely do that. Yeah, we'll definitely go over that. Yeah, I think most of them are... All of them are important. Most most of the variations are trivial. You know, you hear some skeptics of like, let's say the New Testament. They'll say, oh, there's 200,000 variants in the New Testament. 
and most of them are like spelling differences and like 99% don't make a difference. There are some significant ones. The longer ending of Mark, the woman caught in adultery, things like that. Um, yeah, Isaiah 61. There are some significant ones uh, in, in variations from the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. Most of them, though, you'll get the same message. I think you'll get the same message of law and gospel whether you're reading Masoretic text or Greek Septuagint. However, there are some significant Messianic prophecies in the Septuagint that early Christians uh, used to convert uh, Jewish people not to Christianity but to belief in the Messiah. <laughs> not, to, not to drop the Torah, but to just believe in the promised Messiah um, that you won't find in the Masoretic text. The good thing is, so. is when we study differences, it's never trivial pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. Brother TJ? In, um, when I talk from Ephesians 4, uh, it talks about the Messiah going up and uh, ah, bring down yeah. the and making you know, pastors and preachers and things like that. That's that's a translation from the Aramaic Targums, and it's a midrash done on that translation. So it's not it's not it's not quote direct from you know either either source, but it yep. does come from the Aramaic Targums. You know, you mentioned the yeah yeah. You know, people, you know three hundred of them being direct quotes from the Greek Septuagint. Yeah, for sure Isaiah, Isaiah or Act Eight in the unit. Yeah. You know, That's one of my favorite T.J. Martin sermons. That's one of my favorite sermons. Yeah, I was on I was on the edge of my seat because I didn't know what you were talking about. And T.J.'s right. They, Paul is quoting from the Aramaic Targum, or like you said, the Midrash on the Aramaic Targum. It's beautiful. What are, you, what are you reading there? Uh, I'm reading the quote. He ascended us to the heights with captives in his train. He gave gifts to men. Right. Right. So it's Psalm 61. It's, it's Psalm 61 where Moses ascends the mountain and gets the, gets the law and brings it down to the children of Israel. Yeah, yeah. And then Paul takes, so Paul takes that, he does a midrash with it, out of the, out of the uh, Aramaic Targums, and he applies that same verbiage, I guess, TJ called me up when he was studying for that sermon before he gave the sermon and he asked me, he said, have you ever thought about where Paul's quoting from in Ephesians 4? And of course, my first inclination was Septuagint. TJ said, nope, not the Septuagint. I said, well, you're telling me it wasn't quoting from the Hebrew because when you read Ephesians 4 and Psalm 61, it doesn't line up. But when you notice that Aramaic Targum, it's, it's a perfect quotation. So then I go up in my library because I thought I had a book about the Targums, and I, I find the book, and I pull up Ephesians 4, and there's a scholar in there that's saying the exact same thing that Paul's quoting from the Targum. So it's, it's, a, it's an excellent, excellent point. And these are things that, you know, these are things you normally won't hear taught. But, we, I mean, they're important, and we need to understand them. And you won't understand Paul's point unless you understand the target. You won't get the point. So it's Psalm, it's Psalm 68. 68. Let me uh, 
see if I can find what it's so in Psalm 68, I had somebody ask me this question one time. Why did Paul misquote this? Because there's anti-Paul uh, people that we use, <laughs> right? So it says, uh, you know, the chariots of Elohim are 20,000, that's verse 17, even thousands of thousands. Yahweh is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. You have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts from men, even from the rebellious that Yahweh Elohim might dwell there. Yeah. Um, so, in one area, is, you know, he received gifts, but then he's giving gifts. And my answer to them, I didn't know about the old Tartar thing, yeah. but I, I do know about Midrash. And right. often what somebody will do is they'll say, well, you see, this happened here. Moses did this, right? Moses went up and received gifts. Christ is greater than Moses. He went up and gave gifts. Hmm. So he's he's twisting it and giving it a different interpretation, showing that Christ is greater than Moses. And uh, you know, I don't know. I, I, right. I, yeah, I would encourage you to listen to the sermon. And TJ, you can add to this, but from my memory, um, what pa- the point Paul is drawing on is as Moses went up and received the Torah, and then came down and gave it to the people as a gift. Yeshua ascends up into heaven, prophet like Moses receives the authority to delegate, and then he gives apostles, prophets, evangelists. He gave the Holy Spirit. Moses would have, would have, the law would have been a teacher to all the nation of Israel. Does something likewise by putting people in place to feed ministers to the, to the saints? Excellent point. If I remember, I'll try to send you a link to that lesson. Sure. Great lesson. Anybody else? Comments or questions? Cassandra, did you get all that, huh? <laughs> Cassandra's our Bible college student here. So she says when I, she says, uh, Matthew, when I hear you teach, I feel like I'm been bi- I'm back in Bible college. It don't feel like church. <laughs> oh, anybody else? We good? So yeah, so we'll we'll continue this next next full moon by about approximately thirty days from now. We may still be here at the house. I'm, you know, we're not sure. But we may still be at the house, but we'll do Septuagint part three. I appreciate so much everybody being here. This it takes a lot of work to put these lessons together, and I'm like when I'm through, I'm like forty five minutes. I spent like twenty hours doing this, and now it's over. But it does my heart good to have people here that are willing to listen. And don't think that you have to agree. If you have areas of disagreement, you can always text me or message me and say, Brother Matthew, I don't see it like this, and we'll talk about it, and maybe I'll learn because um, I'm, I'm always learning when I'm, when I'm studying. So, And on this subject, this is a subject in the making for like 10 years. I've been looking at this, but I'm still learning. Um, we'll pray, and then we'll uh, fellowship till our service. Yeah.